Webcasting around the world from the desert metropolis of Phoenix, Arizona, this is The Dividing Line. The Apostle Peter commanded Christians to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us, yet to give that answer with gentleness and reverence. Our host is Dr. James White, Director of Alpha Omega Ministries and an elder at the Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church. This is a live program, and we invite your participation. If you'd like to talk with Dr. White, call now at 602-973-4602 or toll-free across the United States. It's 1-877-753-3341. And now with today's topic, here is James White. And good afternoon. Welcome to The Dividing Line, a special dividing line today. We're going to dive right into this. I just actually got off the air about uh, 90 seconds ago. I was on with... uh, Janet Mefford discussing uh, my book, The Same-Sex Controversy, and I'm going to have to admit it is going to be a bit of a challenge for me to dive right into this because I am joined by a man uh, who is a a warrior for the faith, a dear brother in the Lord, uh, Dr. Michael Brown. Michael, thank you so much. I know you are busier than a the proverbial one-armed paper hanger. Is, that, is, is there a corresponding Jewish one-armed paper hanger joke type thing that I could use when I'm talking to you? Uh, if if it exists, I'm I'm not aware of it actually. <laughs> uh, but by the way, I just got off the air 90 seconds ago dealing with the question about black Christians and President Obama's uh, call for redefinition of marriage. So I'm, I- I'm shifting gears right along with you. James. <laughs> Let me tell you, the clutch is going to burn out just a little bit because uh, you you had to have been watching the news feed at the same time. You've got the the House defeating the uh, the. Um, uh, gender-based uh, abortion ban. You've got the the first uh, district court um, uh, saying DOMA's uh, unconstitutional. I mean, have you ever seen, have you ever felt so much in the middle of uh, the eye of the storm as over the past number of weeks? No, it's and you also mentioned, uh, left out SB 1172 in California that's made its way through the Senate that has to go to the Assembly, which would make it illegal for any professional counselor right. to uh, tell someone under 18 that they can be helped with unwanted same-sex attraction. So, yeah, it, it, I'll tell you, though, at the same time, I absolutely feel that, uh, just as you do, that I've been called for such a time as this. And, and all of the opposition, all of the craziness happening in our society just reminds us of the importance of shining like light and salt, being salt in the society. Well, uh, you and I, I listen to your program all the time, and we are saying so many of the same things. Uh, it's awful nice to know that we're not alone out there, and we do know there are many, many others. But I, I, I tell you, I, don't, I doubt you've had the opportunity to listen to the, the five-hour uh, series I did in response to Matthew Vines. Well, it really wasn't five hours because one hour of it was Matthew Vines. But uh, I've just never seen, and, and Rich Pierce, the president of ministry, has, has confirmed this. We've just never seen so many people contacting us saying, this is what we need. I've been wanting to talk to such and such a person in my life, and I, I just didn't know how to deal with the Romans 1 issue or... Uh, just so much of this stuff, and it, it just it is an amazing time to be in ministry and to be seeking to encourage people in, in these ways. And uh, you know, we we often uh, pray for you, and you're right out uh, in the front. Hey, and you you are now you have your own uh, outline, your own information sheet on the Southern Poverty Law Center website. I mean, you have arrived, sir. 
Oh, yeah, I, I am listed together with Malik Zulu Shabazz, the leader of the New Black Panthers, uh, David Duke, former Grand Wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, neo-Nazis, Jew-bashing white supremacists. I, I have made it to the big time. I am on the list of 30 activist leaders of the new radical right. Oh, my. And I'm also on the list, uh, GLAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, really Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Disagreement. Yes. They have a list of 36 commentators to avoid because of our radical views. I'm on their list as well. The funny thing is, aside from the SPLC getting my birth year wrong, they have me as born in 1967, which means I was... I was bar mitzvahed at the age of one, <laughs> graduated from high school at the age of six, was married at nine, and had our first child at ten. So aside from just quibbling over little details, when they actually quote me, glad SPLC, the quotes are fine. Like This gets me on the list with the, the leader of the New Black Panthers and the former <laughs> Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. But the, that, to me, it just exposes the folly of the other side. And the truth of where we stand, but yeah, it's it's been a time of real honor, and I'm I've never been more encouraged in the Lord. Oh well, let me tell you, I have listened to so many of your debates, and they they just echo my own experiences in these things. So it's uh, it's going to be hard for me to shift. I, I must admit, because there's just so much going on right now. But we're going to try it anyways, because uh, I don't want to be uh, engaged in false advertising, and I let folks know, and we know that there's a lot of folks listening. Um, a number of I don't I don't even remember when it was you told me about the uh, book on Isaiah fifty three because it was it was delayed by a number of months wasn't it Oh yeah quite quite a few months I think there was some transition in the editorial department but it was months and months delayed and uh, I was I was thrilled to finally see the volume come out in Isaiah fifty three a bunch of different uh, Christian scholars coming together for a conference and then out of the papers from that conference turned into a, a book edited by Daryl Bach and Mitch Glazer. I'm I'm so pleased to see it out. Yeah, I and I've been looking for it, and uh, I, I thought, you know what? What would be absolutely um, outside the normal realm for Christian broadcasting or webcasting would be to get uh, Michael Brown on here and have the two of us walk through this text based on the original language text and address the key issues. Now, I have listened. Uh, to numerous of your debates with with various rabbis who seem to very frequently be named after precious metals for some reason. I'm not really sure what that's all about. But um, this obviously is the premier text that you have to deal with in your activity in responding to the anti-missionaries and doing these debates. Would, would that be a fair statement? Yeah, and, and I would say it's the principal text that we point to in the Tanakh and the Hebrew Scriptures to say that the message of the Messiah's suffering, death, resurrection, in particular of his vicarious suffering, is clearly laid out in the Hebrew Scriptures. So this is a text that we frequently point to. Because of that, the counter-missionaries and rabbis will try to say it cannot apply to Jesus. So you have had to deal with this. You've had to deal with, well, there's not just one objection I mean, there is a it, it, an amazing number of objections that Jewish polemicists have developed over the centuries to almost every aspect of Isaiah chapter 53. And in, in fact, many, as you've pointed out, many of the objections are self-contradictory. In other words, if if you accepted all the objections, you'd be contradicting yourself. And yet that's still what you have to deal with when you're dealing with this particular subject. 
But interestingly enough, the the main interest that that I bring, uh, the current main interest for me, is that many of my Muslim opponents will borrow Jewish objections to Isaiah chapter 53 because of Surah 4157 in the Quran, which denies the crucifixion of Jesus and his substitutionary death and hence his burial and resurrection as well. And so it is fascinating to get that spin and to see how often the Muslims are borrowing from the Jews to get, mm-hmm. the, to get their objections to Isaiah chapter 53. So the, the thought crossed my mind. You've, you've got a new book out that we're going we're gonna to get you back on to talk about the real kosher Jesus. And, of course, I, it's been a, over a year since we talked about homosexuality and, and, and so on and so forth. So there's lots of things we could go for. But I just thought, you know what? We could make this available, and I think a lot of folks would like to hear just a just walking through this text to to be able to understand to be able to present it to other people because it has so many applications and it's it's so foundational to our understanding and really it's absolutely amazing when you think about these words written so many centuries before the coming of Christ and yet there's just no other way to explain them than there is a spirit of god there is a supernatural realm and there is such a thing as prophecy and it's just, it, it truly is a tremendous, tremendous text. So um, I, I'm very thankful that you've taken the time to join with us. Oh, it's, it's a joy, and I, I so appreciate what you do and the attention to the text. And because this has no interruptions in the broadcast, we can really dive in deeply. And, you know, when I look at the many different objections to the text, it reminds me of maybe art critics explaining why the Mona Lisa is really not special. And, you know, or, <laughs> yeah, right. Be, because when, when you're all done with it, you just tell someone, especially if they can read in Hebrew, but just give them an English translation, even one from from uh, from Jews and say, just read this when they're done reading it. Uh, it it's, it's it reminds me of the story of a Messianic Jewish leader in Florida raised in an atheist household. He came to faith. He showed his father Isaiah 53 and his father said to him, if I believed in God. I would say that was Jesus. <laughs> wow, uh, there's a veil right there. Uh, unfortunately, uh, still still existing. But yeah, of course, uh, that has to be supernatural. And in fact, I just today added uh, the JPS to my accordance setup so that I could have it on the screen today as we look at it. Now, let's let's dive into this because I know you you may struggle with this because we don't have to stop every six minutes. It, you, you don't get to take a drink of water or anything. It's uh, we just get to we just get to dive right through this stuff. But let's start with the necessary background, and I, I think uh, I can I can identify from how often you have emphasized this and how you've you've presented this. The necessary background to this is to recognize the primary Jewish interpretation, at least not in the Talmudic sources, but from Razian onwards. Um, who is the servant in Isaiah, and is this simply talking about Israel when we talk when we start at Isaiah fifty two thirteen? Right. What we need to do is look at the larger context where the servant starts to be mentioned in the forty first chapter, and is mentioned almost twenty times after that. Sometimes the servant is explicitly identified as Israel, uh, Jacob, Israel. You are my witnesses. It's clearly plural. It's speaking about the nation of a, as a whole, but often the, the people are described as deaf and dumb, or the people are exiled, or the people on some level are straying or under judgment. And then there's a figure that rises up and is presented as an individual. 
apparently in chapter 42, clearly in chapter 49, clearly in chapter 50, and I'd argue also clearly from the end of 52 through chapter 53. And this individual is righteous. This individual has as his mission uh, restoring Israel back to God and also being a light to the nations. And we see from Isaiah 49 that it seems that this individual fails in his mission and God speaks to him and says, not only will you regather Israel because it seemed that the servant failed to do that, but you will also be a light to the nations. And the larger context is Isaiah prophesying about the exile to come and then the Jewish people coming out of exile. And this picture of the Jewish people coming out of exile was was pictured as being greater than the exodus that took place. Hmm. And and as they, they came out in haste from Egypt, they will not have to come out in haste from Babylon and from the nations. And the the people of Israel emerging from exile becomes a template, a picture of redemption. So it's against this backdrop, the Jews coming out of Babylonian exile, that we now see this greater picture of the individual, not a foreigner, but the one who fulfills Israel's destiny, the righteous remnant of one. Some of the rabbis say the text refers to Israel as a whole. Others recognize that doesn't work, and they say it's the righteous remnant. True, but it is a righteous remnant of one, Hmm. and only he accomplishes this mission. He who was rejected by his own people and yet became a light to the world and will ultimately be accepted by his people, the one who fulfills Israel's destiny, Yeshua the Messiah. That's the larger uh, context as we focus in now on this text in Isaiah 52:13 to 53:12. Now, just very quickly as I as I look at the text, uh, do you see um do you think the New Testament writers when they when they look at at Avdi in uh 52:13, my servant, uh the Greek Septuagint translation of that is hapaismu, which of course we know is used of of Jesus in messianic fulfillment texts in in the New Testament. Uh, do you see them making that connection as well, especially in light of the fact that Pice can be used uh, in a very close um, relationship uh, sense as well? My my son, my child, uh, the, the relationship that exists between this one and the father. Yeah, there's there's certainly a, a clear pride that's being spoken of in fifty two thirteen. Hineas Kilavdi, behold, my servant will act wisely or will will prosper. And Yeshua, as the servant of the Lord, the Son of God, pointing to these texts, explaining how he was going to be poured out as a ransom, even pointing to the text in Luke 22, when he says he's about to be betrayed and he's going to be reckoned with the transgressors. This was clearly in the conscious mind of the disciples, and, and certainly the the identification of servant having an intimacy to it, I believe, is found in the text and recognized by the New Testament writers. Wouldn't you have loved to have had the opportunity? And we do, in essence, via the Spirit. But uh, I would love to have been with the disciples in those first days after the resurrection when he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. What what would have been like to have listened to the Son of God exegeting this text? I, 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 I can't imagine what that would have been like. Yeah, and, and when here they are in despair, when he dies, they, they couldn't figure out that he was going to die. When he talked about resurrection, they couldn't figure out resurrection because they couldn't figure out that he was going to die. When he dies, they're, they're in despair. They're hopeless. He rises from the dead. And then those famous accounts uh, in, in Luke's gospel, at the end of Luke's gospel, the two on the road to Emmaus, 
how foolish, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then his own uh, inner circle of 11 in, 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 in Luke 24, where he opens their minds so they can understand the scriptures. Could you imagine when he says, look, it's written here and it's written here and <gasps> they suddenly see it. And then another phrase, slow of heart. I mean, that's there, there's rebuke there. We're supposed to see these things. Yes, a- absolutely. And it's one of these things that I don't know if you've ever been shown a picture and you look at it. And you think it's a picture of an old man and they see, no, it's a beautiful woman. You go, what are you talking about? And then you look again and it kind of morphs in front of your eyes. Right. It's, and then once you see it, you can't imagine that you didn't see it. Right. That's, that's how clear it is. And I know that there are sincere rabbis and Jewish friends of mine, counter missionaries, and they look at this text and they don't see it. And, and I have to conclude that somehow their minds have not been opened right. b- because it, it is so overwhelmingly clear. You mentioned some objections or self contradictory the the two most contradictory to me self-contradictory are the objections that a the new testament writers rewrote what happened to jesus to make it fit isaiah 53 and b isaiah 53 does not line up with what's written in the new testament (laughs) well if you're finding the same person using both those arguments then you've definitely got a problem there's no question about it all right um what particular translation uh, should we use as as our base here? I've I've got the JPS up. Is is that? Uh, would you like to go with that? You want to? Uh, what, what what do you normally yeah, that, utilize there? That's that's fine. I've got the Hebrew in front of me, so yeah. Well, yeah I, was, got... I was we're going to be looking at the Hebrew, but um, most uh, if if we really focus upon that, we're going to be losing a lot of the audience. So we need to make sure to explain any of the any of the terminology that we use. So um, new JPS is great. Okay, the all right, is great, all right, sure. Indeed, my servant shall prosper, be exalted, and raised to great heights, just as the many were appalled at him. So marred was his appearance, unlike that of man, his form beyond human semblance. Now, is there a? There does seem to be a structure from fifty-two thirteen through the end of fifty-three, especially when it starts talking about his grave and and the land of the living and and so on and so forth. But this is starting off. Uh, how do you understand? This marring, this this first section, is it diving right into the suffering of the servant, or or how do you understand starting at this point? Uh, yes, I do, and and here's the the unexpected contrast: the servant is so highly exalted that the ancient rabbis in, in the midrash said that he will be higher than Abraham, uh, more lofty than Moses, and even more raised up than the ministering angels. These terms that are used about high and lofty and lifted up are primarily used of God himself. Mm-hmm. Many Christians familiar with Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Same words used here about the exaltation of the servant. And yet the shock, the shock here, as it turns to second person, which can happen in Hebrew, goes from second person to third, from you to he or they. Many were astonished at you. That it is talking about the level of suffering that, that he is marred by violence to the point that you can barely recognize that he's a human being. Uh, you, you think of somebody that gets so terribly beaten and you see a picture of them and you, you can barely even tell if it's a male or a female. Let's say that the, the suffering is going to be that severe that the shock, the astonishment will be this one that's high and exalted. Was that one who suffered? And then it goes from there into what his role will be in chapter 15. So I definitely see it. There's a debate sometimes in verse 14, the word mishchat, can that refer to he was anointed? But it's clearly what's in mind here is the level of suffering hmm. and, and his figure, actually his, his face actually being so beaten that it's hard to even recognize him as a man. 
So it goes on to say, and this is the JPS translation, just so he shall startle many nations, but most translations actually use the term sprinkle. When when you look at Nazah there, what, how, why is there, why is there the ability to have sprinkle or or startle? And if it is sprinkle, how would you understand that? Sure. In in verse fifteen, Ken Yazet Goyim Rabim, the the root Yazet, the verb Yazet coming from the root Nazah, would most commonly mean sprinkle, sprinkling blood, etc. Except it's almost always used with with a preposition sprinkle blood on the altar. Mm-hmm. So you would have expected it to say, thus will he sprinkle upon uh, many nations. Ibn Ezra, a top medieval Jewish commentator, said that it's referring to sprinkling the blood of the nations, meaning he will do war against the nations. That's a very much minority view. Others try to relate this to an Arabic verb, to jump or startle, so he will cause the nations to, to jump or be startled. That's actually reflected in the Septuagint, but a recent yes. critical commentary of John Golden Gay, he argues that the, uh, without the preposition, most of the ancient versions figured out what this was about and that it is right to translate, so will he sprinkle many nations. And because the language through the rest of the text is so priestly, it uses so many words from, from the cult, from the temple, from sacrifice, from bearing sin and guilt, I think you have to look at that as a legitimate possibility that it's an unusual usage of the verb, but it does mean sprinkle in this context. Yeah, the Septuagint uses thalmazo there, which which would uh, substantiate that particular view. But So the JPS says, Just so he shall startle many nations, kings shall be silenced because of him, for they shall see what has not been told them, shall behold what they never have heard. Um, it, it, would, would you identify that with the proclamation of the gospel or is it the the shocking nature of the suffering of the of the of the servant i i believe that it will it refers to two things on the one hand the proclamation of the gospel through the ages where many kings and many leaders have been shocked to find out that this jesus yeshua is actually the messiah and then his exaltation at the end of the age when when the whole world will come to recognize this now the counter-missionaries would say this refers to Israel's exaltation that will so shock the nations, uh, but that breaks down in many other ways as we go through this text itself. So yes, as the gospel's been proclaimed, many kings and leaders have put their hands on their mouths and shocked that this one, this crucified one, this despised and rejected one, is actually the king of all kings, and then the final revelation will come at his return. Now, do you see, uh, there, there does seem to be at least a minor break at the beginning of 53, because you, you have the interrogative. Uh, you have this almost rhetorical question that is asked, who can believe what we have heard, upon whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So there, there seems to be somewhat of, is, or do you see this as just a continuation of the amazement of the message itself uh, in, in regards to who the suffering Messiah is and what has been done to him? It, there's, there's certainly a pause at the end of 52.13 through 53.1. Uh, there is, <clears throat> excuse me, definitely a, a pause of sorts. So now it's a, it's a dramatic continuation. Having presented this amazing overview and just three short verses of the Messiah's exaltation, but only after great suffering, now it's going to give the details of that headline, of that caption. 
Now, the traditional Jewish view is that it is the nations who continue to speak, and they are now speaking, saying, who's believed what we've heard? Who's believed this report? Mm -hmm. And they would say, look, it says at the end of 15, it uses the the, uh, verb shama to hear. What they had not heard, they now understand. And then it continues with the the noun shmuah from the same root, who has believed what we have heard. Uh, and, And the claim is that it's the nation speaking about Israel's sufferings, the problem is, though, that God said emphatically that if Israel was righteous, he would bless the nation and make them the head and not the tail, as opposed to scatter them around the world in judgment. You say, well, maybe it's the righteous remnant who has been among the sinning Israelites, and that righteous remnant fulfills the text. The problem here is that if this is the nation speaking, they are recognizing that when the righteous remnant was suffering, it was suffering for the sins of the nations, and the suffering of the righteous remnant brought healing to the nations. No, to the contrary, God says to the nations that mistreat Israel, I will strike you and destroy you, and you won't even exist as a nation anymore. The suffering of the Jewish people scattered around the nations did not bring blessing and healing to the nations. When they overdid the punishment, it brought judgment on them. So the only legitimate way to read this is this is now the voice of the Jewish people who are proclaiming this message and saying, who has believed what we have heard? Who's believed our report? And has the arm of the Lord been revealed to these people? Do you see anything significant? Well, I, I, let me take that back. I know that you have to have because in one of your debates with your good friend, friend Rabbi Shmuley Botiach, you sort of you didn't have much time to develop it. And uh, I, I hear those types of things, especially because I do so many debates as well. But uh, one of the objections that he raised was, uh, did you notice in everything that Michael said, there was nothing about believing in this Messiah? <laughs> I did that pretty pretty well, didn't I? That was almost a good uh, impersonation there. But, uh, <laughs> and you responded by saying, but, but Shmuley, don't you see? Hey, Amin is right there. It's, it, you, have, uh, you have belief right there in Isaiah 53.1. And... He responded, and you. it was in one of those situations where you didn't get a counter-response to, to respond to him. But his response basically was, what, what are you talking about? This isn't talking about believing in a Messiah. Uh, that, that, that's irrelevant. Do you see the use of the term uh, pistuo in the Greek Septuagint, uh, belief in, in, in this text, as, as, as how, how is that relevant in this case? Yeah, well, it's absolutely relevant because that is a major charge that the Jewish community will bring against us. Nowhere does it say we have to believe in a Messiah. Nowhere does it say that a relationship with God is, is uh, related to that. Nowhere does it say that we become righteous through that. So, of course, I point out that in the creed uh, developed by Maimonides, which is repeated uh, daily by religious Jews, one of the 13 principles of faith says, I believe in perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and Jews are to confess that daily. (laughs) But here in Isaiah 53, the question is asked, who has believed our report? Which indicates that if you don't believe it, you miss out on what God has done. Your eyes are blinded to it. If you believe it, then you can receive the benefits of it. So, yes, it's an important question. And and all I have to do, I don't don't have to quote John 3.16. I can just as well quote Isaiah 53.1. Have you believed the report? Have you believed this message about the Messiah? Right, right. So there's, there seems to be, and I'll ask you to comment on the transition here, for he has grown 
by his favor like a tree crown, like a tree trunk out of arid ground. He had no former beauty that we should look at him, no charm that we should find him pleasing. Um, you've already commented on, on who's speaking here, uh, but when it when it does say that, that we should look at him, that we should find him pleasing, um, it, it does seem vitally important that we sort of keep the audiences and speakers in mind um, to see how this, this is being fulfilled in the Messiah. Yes, and, and the, here are the subjects in the chapter. We have we, the Jewish people as a whole, speaking. And obviously the prophet gives voice to his people, as commonly happens in the prophetic books. Uh, you have the subject of the one that is being pictured here, the Messiah who suffers, but not for his sins. And then you have the one who is announcing the Messiah's exaltation and who even speaks in the first person uh, through the chapter, which is God himself. And he refers, for example, to my people, or when he says, I will divide for him among the many of the spoils. So it's the Jewish people who are looking at this, and it's, it's speaking of the Messiah's humble origins. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? What, Messiah comes? A carpenter's son from Galilee? Are you kidding me? Now, some would say, yeah, but doesn't Luke say that he grew in, in wisdom and stature and so on? Yes, but, but what's interesting is that there's never a description in the New Testament about his, his exceptional looks. Right. I, I mean, it, it talks about David in the Old Testament. It talks about certain women in the Old Testament. It talks about Saul being head and shoulders taller than others in Israel and standing out. It doesn't say that about the Messiah. He's described in very humble terms. We know almost nothing about his first 30 years. He grows up in obscurity in a small town in Galilee as a carpenter's son. Nothing special about him in the natural in terms of his illustrious origins. And then it moves on to his dramatic sufferings. And, it, and who, who is this? He's, he's a nobody. He's suffering now for his own sins. And, and this is how the chapter unfolds. He was despised, shunned by men, a man of suffering, familiar with holy, um, disease, uh, grief, sorrows. We'll, we'll, talk about, uh, we'll talk about these words and, and whether they're meant to be poetically talking about the same things. As one, who hid his, as one who hid his face from us, over against as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We held him of no account. So obviously... There are, as you've mentioned numerous times, certain uh, terms in the original language in this text that uh, are are open to interpretation, have a range of semantic uh, meanings. So let's let's look at this this text. How do you understand uh, the JPS translation and 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 how it differs from some of the the modern Christian translations? Yeah, if if we translate it literally, ish machavot viduach holy. It is a man of pains and intimately acquainted with disease. The fact is, in the prophetic literature, though, pains and disease are often metaphors of human suffering. Some of the words could be used, for example, of Israel's suffering in Egypt. Uh, Isaiah, the first chapter, pictures Israel as sin-sick from head to toe. It pictures Israel as a physical body wounded and bruised and bleeding from head to toe. So this need not mean that the Messiah himself was sickly. What it means is that, that he is a man of pains and suffering, and he is intimately involved with the human plight, intimately involved with, with sickness, with disease, with pain. He has entered into our suffering. So it could either be describing 
someone who's terribly ill or someone who is deeply enmeshed in the human plight, given himself to suffering alongside of us. And then at the end of the verse, uh, where it speaks of as one from whom men hide their faces or one from whom uh, uh, his face is hidden, either could read in the Hebrew, the, the word mimenu could mean from him or it could mean from us. Either way, people see him and turn their head or the head has to be turned away from him one way or the other. He is despised and we esteemed him not. The overall picture that actually emerges is very clear. I was talking to a, a counter-missionary about this one time, and I said, do you think that the overall interpretation of the passage hinges on individual words or overall context? He said, oh, definitely context. Mm-hmm. So these are just nuances within a larger picture of one who suffers terribly. Is it speaking primarily of his death on the cross? Is it speaking of his intercessory ministry, healing the sick, driving out demons, being with the outcasts and the despised and rejected? Probably both, in my view. Now, there are some uh, Jewish objections that you raised in your monumental work on that subject that did focus upon this idea of disease and, and sickness. Is that is that correct? Oh, yeah, that they would say that the Messiah himself had to be physically sick. There is a Talmudic tradition that says that uh, the Messiah sits at the gates of Rome and he's a leper and he takes off his bandages. It's actually very moving. He takes off his bandages one at a time rather than the other lepers who change all their bandages at once. But he does it one at a time for fear that he'll be in the midst of changing his bandages when it will be time for him to be revealed. But as Raphael Patai points out, the Jewish anthropologist, this is a projection of Jewish suffering back on the Messiah. And what I would say is it's very important for the Jewish people to recognize that we have a suffering Messiah who relates to our pain who relates to our suffering in exile, who relates to the horrors of the Holocaust, who relates to the torture and and the disease that the Jewish people have been subjected to in their times of exile, that he's one with us. And that's the clear picture here of a suffering Messiah. He does not literally have to be physically sick, according to this description, but one who is intimately involved with human suffering and pain. Now, in verse uh, 3, it says, Nivzeh, he was, he was despised. And one of the objections that one of your opponents has uh, raised in the past is, look, Jesus was, was a popular guy. He had all sorts of people following him around and had large crowds. And uh, th- this can't be Jesus because uh, he, he wasn't despised. How, how have you responded to that? Right, and it's a fair objection to say, look, this picture is one who's rejected whereas he was hailed by crowds and and hailed as king as he came into Jerusalem. The prophet here is focusing on on two things. He's focusing on his obscure origins, and he's focusing on his rejection and his death. That's the primary focus, in fact, for the rest of this chapter. And when we think of Jesus as followers of Jesus and what, what is preached and what we remember, what is emphasized is not the fact that crowds followed him, but rather that he was crucified. Right. And that has always been our message, that he was crucified, that he was treated as a common criminal, that he was abandoned, that he was misunderstood, and that he continues to be misunderstood and rejected by his very own people. So all we have to recognize is what the prophet is focusing on, and there's no question that it's a totally accurate description. Just as we'll see in a little while, when it speaks about his silence, it's not saying that he never taught or preached. It's not even saying that on the cross he didn't cry out with Scripture. It's saying that he didn't resist 
death that, that he went willingly to slaughter. And, and that's what's so specific here that when people read it, uh, several of us have had family members, Jewish family members, who read the text and thought that we changed it, that we, we switched Bibles on them or something like that. Or they've said, no, 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 I want to read the Old Testament, not the New Testament, thinking this had to be a New Testament account. I think it's very important. It's certainly something that I have uh, caught a number of times in listening to your conversations with uh, with various rabbis and, and other representatives on this particular subject, is when these objections are raised, they force us to have a much... Uh, if we've not, if we've, if we've just read Isaiah fifty-three and we have not thought through what the prophet is actually saying and what the range of possible meanings of the words are, we can get tripped up. You know, for example, you just raised. We haven't gotten there yet, but but he, you know, like a sheep that is silent before his shears, he he did not utter a word, and yet Jesus. You know, uh, uh, Shmuley has more than once quoted from Jesus' statements from the cross and things like that. This, therefore, he is disqualified. And what that requires the Christian to understand is that when it talks about opening his mouth, it's talking about opening his mouth in protest. Uh, when it, when it talks about doing violence, for example, well, you know, he used a whip to drive people out of, well, there's a certain context to what doing violence is. It's, it's all forces us to think through much more clearly what the possible range of meanings are and what the context in the Old Testament is. And unfortunately, it, it, it just isn't really common amongst a lot of evangelicals that especially when we're reading from the Tanakh that we contextualize it to that level. Yeah, and what we have to realize is that these are not just words that were thrown together on a page to paint a general picture to get us to say ooh and ah. This was God describing in advance something of such momentous importance that when Yeshua would point back to it and the first apostles and other believers would point back to it, that you'd see it and say, my God, you laid it out in advance. Here it is in detail. And when, when we're reading it just as Christians, we're edified, we're blessed. When we're challenged, that's when we need to dig deeper. And the deeper we dig, the more profound it becomes. Yeah, it really does. Yet it was our sickness that he was bearing, our suffering that he endured. We accounted him plagued, smitten, and afflicted by God. Um, again, we accounted him to be Mukhe. We, we, we thought that he was smitten by God. Let's, let's reestablish who's speaking and how this would have been understood and, and how we should see this verse. Yes, so again, this is the, the Jewish people, the prophets speaking of the nation as a whole, and saying that when we saw him suffering, and that becomes explicit in verse 5 and then later in the chapter, when we saw him suffering on the cross, when we saw him dying, we thought he was suffering for his own sin. We thought he was suffering as one smitten by God. Now, the word nagua, it could mean smitten as a leper, or simply smitten. Mm -hmm. And since the rest of the text just talks about his wounds and his bruises that were inflicted on him in verse 5, it's talking about violence that's done to him. We understand that when the Jewish people, the nation, saw him hanging on the cross, and many to this day, when they look at that, they assume he's dying for his own sin. He's dying as a common criminal. He's dying because he tried to lead a revolt against Rome. He's dying for something he did. And that was the obvious assumption. 
And what's interesting, in verse 4, beginning where it says, Surely it was our sicknesses he bore and our pains he carried. The, the bearing and carrying, these are words that were used in particular in terms of either prophetic intercession or priestly intercession or the guilt offering, carrying or bearing certain guilt. And sickness and disease, again, are used here both both uh, metaphorically and literally. That uh, D.A. Carson and Franz Dalich and others, it was the same conclusion I came to, that through his earthly ministry, he's entering into human pain and sickness, and he's literally carrying sickness, carrying disease, entering into our pain, sighing and grieving with the lostness of humanity, coming down from glory into our midst. And now when he dies on the cross, he's striking at the root cause of all human suffering, which is sin, and thereby literally on the cross, bears our sickness, bears our disease, bears our sin. In, in other words, it's, it's not an emphasis on something physical. It's an emphasis on something spiritual, which is the root cause of all of humanity's pain. The reason there will be no sickness, disease, pain, mental illness, hospitals in heaven is because there'll be no sin there. The reason we have all these problems on the earth is because of sin, and Jesus strikes at the, the root of that, and carries that. And again, prophetic language, speaking of sickness and disease, bearing that, it ties in with spiritual language. The two are really interchangeable. Well, and it, it's fascinating to note that the Septuagint actually says, Hutas tas hamartias hemon ferai. Yes. It uses the term sin uh, rather than uh, griefs or, or sickness there. So it definitely uh, taps into that very uh, vein of understanding that you were just talking about. Right, Septuagint and the Targum, which is very paraphrastic, they, they both read it in terms of, of sin. They read it spiritually only. I, I believe it's a, it's a both and, as Alfred Edersheim points out. But ultimately, it's recognized by Jewish interpreters before the time of Jesus, at the time of Jesus, that the sufferings recounted here are spiritual in their essence. Well, it is interesting because you have sin in, in 53.4 in the Septuagint, and then you have anamia is the translation that then comes out in verse 5 for our transgressions, mm -hmm. uh, which the Jewish Publication Society translation says sin. So it's definitely uh, definitely there. So verse 5, but he was wounded because of our sins, crushed because of our iniquities. He bore the chastisement that made us whole, and by his bruises we were healed. Now with 10 and 12, this seems to be really one of the absolute central assertions because you have here this this clear concept of of representational substitutionary atonement ideas coming together here that have been so important in in Jewish thought. Um, it, would you say this is one of the key texts? It, yes, in, in fact, we're right in the heart of it. Verse verse six reemphasizes it as well. In, in fact, you could argue that the strongest statements for vicarious suffering and vicarious atonement are found not in the New Testament, but in the Hebrew Scriptures right. in these very verses. Uh, and, and remember that when, when Paul is writing what he writes, he has teachings and traditions that have come from, from Yeshua, but otherwise his text, his theology text, is the Hebrew Scriptures. So where it says that, that he, was, he was pierced for transgressions, the Hebrew is stronger than sin. It's the word transgressions. This is, this is willful rebellion. And, and the, the Hebrew is, is very tight in structure. The uh, preposition that's used is used in a causative sense, hence because of. He was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed 
because of our iniquities and the chastisement here, the punishment that made us holy. It is, it is literally the, the chastisement of our shalom. It was upon him, and by his wounds, by his bruisings, there is healing for us. And that's, the, that's what we have to recognize cannot apply to the righteous remnant. If there was a so-called righteous remnant, we know in Scripture there, were, there was the minority, the righteous ones that looked to God and, and sought to please him and live by his law, that if they were suffering, Jewish people suffering around the world, let's say there was a righteous remnant in the Holocaust and a righteous remnant in different times of Jewish history, their suffering did not bring healing to those who smote them. So uh, I talked to a counter-missionary rabbi in 1973, and he said to me, it was a very kindly man, gracious man, a learned man, he said to me, if I punch him in the face, that he is suffering from my sin. True. But his suffering is not bringing healing to me. There's, there's <laughs> or to profound, his nose, actually, either one. Right, or, or to his nose <laughs> or his face, exactly. So there's a profound breakdown of that, and this is a clear picture of vicarious suffering, and there is even Jewish tradition that teaches on the atoning power of the death of the righteous. And there's even a Jewish tradition, a mystical tradition in the Zohar, that likens Isaiah 53 and the picture there to the letting of blood. Uh, it's a custom still practiced in some parts of the world, better known in the ancient world, where there was the concept that you have bad blood, and this blood is causing you to suffer. So let's say your left arm is healthy, your left arm will be cut so that the bad blood can get out of the healthy arm and now your whole body will be healed. And this is taken to explain why sometimes the innocent suffer, why Ecclesiastes speaks of a righteous person who suffers. And the Zohar says the answer is found in Isaiah 53, that sometimes a righteous person suffers for the healing of the world, just like with the letting of blood. Where do we find it? We find it in this very text that he was wounded for our transgressions, and at the cost of his wounds there's healing for us. Hmm. So we have, uh, obviously, five and six then go together, as you were just saying. We all uh, went astray like sheep, each going his own way. And the Lord visited upon him the guilt of all of us, visited upon him. Uh, is that, it, does that really capture uh, the, the placing, the, 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 the transference of, of guilt here uh, with, with clarity? Yeah, uh, visited upon him, laid upon him, the guilt of all of us. It's it's strong. It's that the guilt literally was caused to meet on him. And one of my favorite things about the verse is that it begins and ends. Verse 6 begins and ends with kulanu, which mm -hmm. in Hebrew is all of us. All of us like sheep went astray. Each one turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the guilt of kulanu. all of us. Right. So all of us. So... uh that does cause a problem with some of the Jewish interpretations of who the who the uh, speaker is. Uh, that would that would of necessity somehow. Uh, I'm just trying. I'm just trying to follow because I've heard so many different interpretations of this from the Jewish perspective. Uh, how how do they do they admit that there's differences in 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 who's speaking or no, just. They, they they would claim that this is all the nations saying, all the kings of the nations in particular, who are the representative speakers, saying that the Lord laid on him, on Israel, or the righteous remnant within Israel, the guilt of all of us, that we all strayed. When have they ever I, I, said that? 
if you have lost, uh, if, <laughs> sorry, sorry for the simplistic question, but it just well, seems sort of obvious. Apparently, apparently, at the end, when Israel is exalted, then there will be this reflection. There will be this eye-opening revelation to the Gentile nations, I and see. they'll say, "Oh, now we got it." The the fact is, to make one of the loftiest theological statements in the entire Bible, entire Old Testament. And to put that on the lips of pagan kings is stretching things a, a bit far as well. But as you go down, when we get to verse 8, when it speaks of the transgression of my people, mm-hmm. now you have to t- say that, that they're each speaking individually here. So it, it becomes very convoluted. Yeah, except my people. We, we know who that is in context. Okay, so there is a, a laying upon him... The iniquity of us all. Now, let's just for a moment, uh, because we're, we're making good progress here, uh, and you you forgot to tell me when you needed to go. So, <laughs> so, well, so I, I forgot to ask you how long the show is. So uh, I, it's it's as long as you want to go to finish this up, uh, especially because we'll probably make this available as a download, so you could direct people to it as well uh, as well, just a resource that you could make available. So it's it's no no problem with us. I just figure you're probably getting close to dinner time too, but. Uh, be that as it, you know, it's still only afternoon here, but we're good. We're okay, good. good. Um, stepping aside just for a moment from where normally you would be dealing with this text, let's back up a moment and recognize that um, this is a text that that uses the divine name in in verse uh, six, and there might be some in the audience as uh, Christians, as Trinitarians, um, who would go. Well, doesn't that support a denial of the identification of Jesus, the very identification you and I argued rather strenuously in a certain debate uh, not quite two years ago, I guess two years are coming up fairly soon, um, against some Unitarians that the New Testament writers have identified Jesus with that divine name. And yet here it is Yahweh who lays on him the iniquity of us all. Um, I know how I respond to that, but uh, is that something that you've needed to respond to? Maybe, have you ever had a a Jewish opponent, for example, raise that as an objection to the Trinity or something like that? Yeah, in the context of the larger objections that would be raised, and if Jesus is God, how does he pray to himself, or who is he talking to on the cross? So really, this is simply the incarnation. This is the message that we find throughout the New Testament. Uh, And it's a primary proclamation of the New Testament apostles that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, that he was a man accredited by God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Messiah, Jesus. We understand that in terms of the incarnation, and we understand that in terms of God's triunity. So that would be the the larger attack, and this would just be one small example of it. Uh, But in point of fact, Yahweh is primarily identified as the Father, but Jesus being the Son also carries that name and reveals the Father. But Yahweh is primarily identified as the Father, primarily identified as the God of Israel. Jesus, Yeshua, primarily identified as the Son and the Messiah of Israel. So it it fits with the overall revelation just fine. Yeah, it is interesting to note that uh, in the Greek Septuagint, once again, it is kurios, which becomes the standard terminology used of Jesus in the New Testament. And I, uh, especially in dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses, have have pointed out that uh, that that name uh, Yahweh is is used of of uh, of God the Father. It's used of the Son. It's the Spirit is the Spirit of Yahweh, 
And so you, given the fact the New Testament writers are willing to utilize uh, that one divine name and yet describe these persons in that way, that's really pointing us to the unity that is theirs and the fact there's one being of God that is shared uh, fully and completely by three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So just I'd mention that uh, since, it's, since it's in the context and sometimes people do raise that particular issue. So verse 7 then, he was maltreated, yet he was submissive. He did not open his mouth like a sheep being led to slaughter, like a ewe dumb before those who shear her. He did not open his mouth. Now, we've already addressed uh, one of the uses of this text in, a, in an objective uh, objection way, uh, and that is that Jesus did speak, and we just basically mentioned that what is really being referred to here is in, in the sense of giving objection, uh, arguing for his own innocence, etc., uh, etc., et and hence that's not an objection to what Jesus does from the cross or in his response to Pilate or even when the high, high priest demands an answer from him, are, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And he then goes to Daniel 7 and makes application to himself and things like that. Um, but what is really, I think, uh, somewhat of a stumbling block uh, is the attitude of the Messiah that, that, is, that is presented here is one of... Uh, well, we would see it as power under control, the humility, the uh, it is necessary that I go do this. Don't you know that the Father could give me, you know, legions of angels and, and all, the, all the rest of that? Um, that still seems to be a real great uh, problem for, for many people today in light of what they expect the Messiah to be, the messianic expectations of a person who is going to overthrow the Roman Empire. And, and you had to emphasize in The Real Kosher Jesus, because evidently uh, Rabbi Shmuley has this idea that Jesus was somewhat of a, of a failed revolutionary with swords and so on and so forth. Um, talk to us a little bit about how this, this verse uh, causes some people to stumble, but what it's really saying. Yeah, it it is an extraordinary testimony to the Messiah's power and his ultimate faith and vindication that he would go to the very lowest place, crucifixion, uh, for our sins, utter rejection in the eyes of man and others would think in the eyes of God, knowing that he would be raised up by his father. He had to tell Peter, put put the sword down, enough, don't. Don't try to kill people or hurt people. I had to say, look, I could call for thousands of angels. He had to tell Pilate, if, if my kingdom was based in this world, then my servants would be fighting for it. Right. And people just didn't get it. And to this day, many think that the cause of God can only be uh, advanced through force and intimidation. And this picture here, yeah, it's not saying that he doesn't cry out on the cross. I had rabbis say, well, look, you can't say one minute he cries out, one minute. It's it's not one minute versus another minute. It's that this is saying he goes willingly to slaughter. Jeremiah spoke of his own innocence in in Jeremiah, the 11th chapter, used similar words. And in fact, one famous medieval interpreter and philosopher, Rabbi Sadra Gaon, interpreted Isaiah 53 regarding Jeremiah and found that that common language. Jeremiah said, I'm just like a sleep going uh, to slaughter. In other words, I'm going innocently to my death and here the messiah doesn't defend himself that's the striking thing the high priest don't you defend yourself Pilate? you're not going to defend yourself no he goes willingly to slaughter he could have called for an armed uprising he could have called for his disciples to start a revolt he could have said this is the time when we break the back of rome and now god will fight for me but if he did that 
even if he succeeded, we wouldn't be talking about him today with praise and adoration because he would have been just another freedom fighter. He would have been like the Maccabees or someone else. The fact is he transforms the world through suffering love. He overcomes the forces of Rome and the forces of every other power, not by fighting it physically, but by dying and now has an authority. Uh-oh. Have uh, we reestablished connection? Did it disappear there? Uh, just for a split second. Okay, there you go. There you're back. Okay. It happens once in a while. It must have been a sunspot. <laughs> but uh, uh, the, the verse starts off with Nagas. Um, this is this is one of the dangers of doing these things on uh, you know live on the fly. But there is an you you have a PhD in Semitic languages, and I am trying to my my in in Arabic there is a similar root that refers to that which is uh, I don't know defiled. Uh, would you happen to know if they're related at all in 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 the roots uh, of these terms? I mean, th- this idea of being oppressed in in verse seven. Uh, are you familiar with with what I'm referring to? Yeah, well, uh, don't yeah. So so the Hebrew nigas, uh, which which comes from the verse nagas, uh, it means here to be treated harshly. You have parallels, for example, First Samuel fourteen twenty four that the men of Israel were were hard pressed, suffered, uh, treated harshly that day. But uh, it, the the correspondence Hebrew sin would correspond to Arabic shin. So uh, uh, yeah. So as as I'm looking here with with Arabic parallels to rouse and drive game to drive vehemently uh, doesn't doesn't, doesn't seem, seem to, to be, be a connected. Okay. Yeah, All right. it, it would have been connected to Arabic nagasha. Right. Uh, if, okay. If that would have a related meaning. All right. Well, that's what that's what you get for writing a book on the Quran while talking about Isaiah fifty three. So anyway, <laughs> so but I'll, I'll I'll double check that because I do not carry the Arabic lexicon in my brain. I wish I did. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, that that would that would be really weird because you're doing some of the other things, and uh, I don't think anybody can do that. All right. So it, it continues. It's same thought continues into verse eight, but here there's a very important transition taking place. By oppressive judgment, he was taken away. Who could describe his abode? For he was cut off from the land of the living through the sin of my people, Ami, who deserved the punishment. So here we've had the suffering. We've had the oppression. Now something else is happening that is in light of the beginning of verse 9, and his grave was set among the wicked, doesn't seem to be any way of arguing that there is not a death going on here. Yeah, the the cumulative evidence absolutely speaks of death. When it speaks of him being pierced, when it speaks of him being wounded, when it speaks of him later in the chapter pouring out his soul to death, when it speaks of him becoming an asham, a guilt offering, and here where it speaks of him being cut off from the land of the living, uh, you really have to argue for metaphorical usage, heaped upon medical for, metaphorical usage, far more than you'd find anywhere else. Uh, it's obviously speaking of his death. When, it's, when it speaks of his grave, uh, it has to be. The beginning of the verse is the most controversial in terms of translation uh, by oppressive judgment. He's taken away. It means something like that. Uh, clearly there's a forceful seizing of him. 
When it asks the question, who can declare his generation, some argue it means uh, who can, uh, who gives a thought to his fate. There are debates on that, but as we move on, he's cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. And now here's where we have a battleground in the Hebrew. It's nega lamo. Counter-missionaries would say, here's what it means, for the transgression of my people. Now the kings, plural, are speaking individually. It's been we, we, us, us. Now it's I, for some strange reason, even though I'm me, my people, throughout Isaiah is always God's people, Israel, either the prophet speaking or God himself speaking. And many Jewish translators and interpreters recognize Ami, my people, God's people, Israel. Negat Lamo, literally a stroke for them. Right. There are Jewish interpreters that say, you see, for them, that means for the Jewish people, plural, even though the servant is singular, there's a hint, and it speaks of the suffering they have endured. Others would point out that Lamo, even within Isaiah, can mean to it or to him. So it could be speaking of one. But it's much better to understand this, as most translations do, that a stroke for them on their behalf, in other words, what my people should have suffered, he took the stroke for them. And in fact, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the form there is most likely a passive form, which would be nuga lamo, smitten for them. So what's being spoken is here, the prophet saying, for the transgression of my people, Israel, or God saying, for the transgression of my people, Israel, he was smitten for them. It absolutely does not speak of a plural servant here, but rather suffering for the people. He takes their place. How? By death. And yet the JPS also renders it in that way, who deserved the punishment. I mean, clearly they're seeing it in, exactly. in the way that you, that you described it as well. Exactly. It's, it's really only a counter-missionary argument. Some of the major medieval Jewish interpreters go in that direction as well. But you, you really have to completely swim against the tide to read it that way. And then to argue that there's a secret plural reference to a singular servant is, is, is ungrammatical and illogical and contrary to the best reading of the text. So he's cut off from the land of the living. This being cut off is through, in the JPS, due to the sin or transgression of my people who deserve the punishment. So you have almost an exhaustion of all the possible terms that could be used for substitution and for uh, atonement in, in, in the way we've always understood it. And then immediately you have reference to his grave set among the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no injustice and had spoken no falsehood. And so I have heard people saying, well, there's really nothing about the death of, of anyone here. And, and it, just, it just seems overwhelmingly clear that the natural progression of language is you are talking about death and now burial. Yeah, yeah. If, if you read it in as unprejudiced a way as possible— and I've tried to read it through so many different eyes and, and get into the hearts and minds of my rabbi friends and my own Jewish people that do not read this as we do. It's unavoidable. It's unavoidable to me that the text explicitly speaks of the servant's death. And what's fascinating is that many of the counter-missionaries will say it's not talking about the Messiah and Jesus. It's not saying Jesus is going to die. But then they'll go on to say it's talking about the suffering of the righteous remnant and the death of the righteous remnant and all the different deaths that they suffered. So when it applies to the righteous remnant, to Israel and the Jewish people, they say it absolutely speaks of death. 
when we apply it to the Messiah, we'll say, no, 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 it doesn't speak of death. I find that fundamentally contradictory. But the very term death, moth, is used there. Do they, do they understand that in some metaphorical way? No, when they when they refer to Israel, they say yes, it refers to his death. When they when they refer to the Messiah, they they'll try to say it can't refer to him. It's really it breaks down there, honestly. And here's what's fascinating: uh, it's it's a a passive statement, or it's it's a third person statement, which is is meant to be a generalization. Uh, when it says his grave was appointed, it's literally he appointed, meaning they people appointed his his. Uh, his grave with wicked people. He dies a criminal's death on the cross. He's going to be buried with wicked people. And then what's fascinating, because it seems like such a contradiction, and with the rich in his death. Now, some would point out that the, the, the Hebrew there is bimotav, in his deaths, death, plural. plural right. um, and that would argue again that it's referring to Jews dying many different ways through the ages. Rabbi David Kimchi Radach argues in that very way. In point of fact, as we see in Ezekiel 28 and in other Semitic languages, plural deaths can sometimes be used for a violent death. So it prophesies about a wicked king in Ezekiel 28, you will die, you singular, will die the deaths, plural, of the wicked. But let's, let's take this a little further still. The Dead Sea Scrolls read it differently, and some ancient translations read it differently, so that it would read Bamatav, Namely, his burial mound or his his burial place is with the rich. So either it says he'll be with the rich in his death, which works perfectly well, of course, from from our perspective of what happens in the New Testament, or uh, that his burial place will be with the rich. And Isaiah is prophesying it that explicitly. Mm. Uh, either way, it does not prove that the servant is plural. No way, no how. And it, at the end, it says he did no violence. There was no deceit found in his lips. So it does speak again of his righteousness as is either explicit or implicit in the rest of the text. Some would say, but he drove out the money changers with a whip. He did violence. Well, well first, the word Hamas, which is unrelated to the Arab, as you know, the Arabic group Hamas, which is an acronym there. But the Hebrew word Hamas, violence, is speaking of murder. It's speaking of, of rape. It's speaking of violent acts like that. And when Jesus drives out the money changers, he drives out the animals with a whip. He does not go around whipping people. There's, that's not what the New Testament is saying. In point of fact, he advocated nonviolent resistance, which is why people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King sought to pattern themselves after his nonviolent pattern. It is interesting to note that the Septuagint uses the singular to thanatu for his death. So they interpret the plural as an intensive in that way. Um, mm -hmm. And then, likewise, make the connection because he had done no anamia, he had done no lawlessness, uh, makes the same connection that, uh, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. So there was a con the same contrast is found there. The subject once again backs up the interpretation which you had you had provided there. So uh, we we press forward. Uh, we're going to get there eventually here, uh, but the Lord. Uh, using uh, Kurias, again, uh, the, the, the Tetragrammaton, the Lord chose to crush him by disease, again, the JPS translation, that if he made himself an offering for guilt and asham, he might see offspring and have long life, and that through him the Lord's purpose might prosper. Now, two things uh, especially uh, here. Um, the concept of the asham, the 
uh, guilt offering has been raised by at least one uh, a Muslim that I know of as an objection to the Christian understanding of this text because he limits the range of the asham uh, to specifically the mosaic uh, parameters contrasting a guilt offering from any type of other substitutionary offering. So we'd like to comment on that. And then secondly, how can how can the Messiah see his offspring? If, if we're right in having looked at the death of this one, this suffering servant, and his grave, and so on and so forth, what in the world does it mean to to see his 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 Zara, his seed. How, how, how can that fit in? Right. So, and let me add one other objection, which is, was he literally crushed with physical disease? Right. And again, the the Hebrew hechli, to make sick, to crush with suffering, need not speak of physical disease. But the honest question to ask, when you have a man who has been flogged mercilessly and beaten, so disfigured he barely even looks like a man anymore, then hanging on a cross, are, are you going to say that is not smiting that person with severe physical suffering? So, it, it, and, and it could well be meant in a metaphorical sense in terms of literal sickness, literal suffering more generally. So that certainly works. Asham, though, is actually a very important word. It's the only offering that was explicit for intentional sins as well as unintentional sins, that it had that explicit usage in the book of Leviticus. And not only so, it was used more broadly in other texts simply to mean a reparation offering. For example, when when the Philistines realized they had blown it when they took in the Ark of the Covenant and all their people were dying, uh, they, they realized that they needed to send a reparation offering not for a specific sin or two, but for gross violation of sinning against the God of Israel. There it is called an asham as well. So the guilt offering is the perfect one to use. It's even better than than referring to a sin offering because it was explicitly used for some intentional sins as well as unintentional sins, as well as in general for a reparation offering. So that breaks down. The question about seeing seed prolonging days is a better question, and it's one that's raised many times by the rabbis. Uh, seeing offspring with banim, sons or grandsons, that that you have a number of times in Scripture. It'll say that this person, like Job or another righteous person, saw, mm-hmm. same, same year, uh, saw sons, grandsons. Here it doesn't say that. It says year ezerah, mm-hmm. which is he will see seed. It's the only time in the entire Bible that the term occurs to the point that the new Jewish version suggests that it, it should be revocalized to say your Ezro, namely he will see his hand, meaning or, or Zro'o, excuse me, he will see his hand, namely God's hand or God's arm of vindication. But reading the text as we have it here, to see seed need not mean physical offspring. Zerah is sometimes used metaphorically in the book of Isaiah in terms of a, a spiritual offspring. Zerah can be used simply of a future generation. And when it speaks of one who will die and who will be buried, who will now prolong days and see seed, it must be speaking of resurrection. And it's either speaking of the spiritual offspring, that we are now brothers and sisters of Yeshua and part of his spiritual progeny, or of future generations of Jews who come to faith 
and and ultimately a national turning, as I believe, of, of Israel in, in the coming days or at the, at the end of the age. So either it's speaking of future generations of Israel that he would see that would believe, or speaking of his spiritual offspring, all believers, either of those work perfectly well and, and do no violence to the text. And let's remember again, it's an unusual expression found only here. Yeah, it is found only here, and it's interesting. The Septuagint reads it as obstetai uh, obst- sperma, so it, it, it certainly sees the... It doesn't see any revocalization or anything like that. There seems to be a completely united textual history behind reading it right. in that way. Um, what does it? What does? How do you understand when when his soul, when he makes himself, or uh, if he he made himself an offering for guilt? Isn't there? I mean, up till now, you've had a real emphasis on you know. The Lord choosing to crush him, you, you, the yes. Lord laying upon him. Now there's something reflexive and purposeful on the part of the suffering servant that, in my mind, connects so intimately with the reflexive pronouns that are used in the Carmen Christi. He humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the cross death. And um, do, you, do you see that as, as coming out as well? Yeah. In other words, will he succeed in his mission? Will he do it? And uh, Mark 10, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, it, uh, and there's no way that God's purpose for humanity can be accomplished without him suffering, which is part of the reason the, the prayer is prayed, to give us insight into that reality. Uh, John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. And then even the concept in, in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 5, that, that he uh, tastes our humanity and he becomes perfect through suffering. So, so he had to do this. There were choices that the son made to the pride and joy of the father. And, and yes, will he do it? Will he succeed? If he does this, then this will happen. He did it. He rose. He sees this spiritual offspring. He sees future generations of Israel. He succeeded in his mission. And, of course, isn't it beautiful to see, likewise, the connection this has to... And, by the way, I'm so thankful that I heard you uh, in one of your debates say this. I've had a number of people that have looked at me rather oddly uh, when I have said this, and I included this in my book on the Trinity, when I talked about Jesus' use of the beginning of Psalm 22... And I have pointed to the fact that uh, his hearers would have understood what what meant and what it was the beginning of and how the rest of that psalm is so deeply messianic. And yet, what is it finished with? But really the vindication of the suffering servant. And, and you have that that beautiful picture that is presented there you made the same comments i forget which debate it was in i've listened to so many of them it's hard for me to remember exactly which one it was but you made the same comments it it seems that in these messianic passages we have them touching upon one another echoing one another in their in their prophetic uh content yeah absolutely and psalm 22 the picture of a of an ideal righteous sufferer who seems abandoned and who is at the uh, now delivered from the jaws of death, and whose deliverance is so profound that it bring it brings praises of God to the ends of the earth. And it even says there at the end of Psalm 22. I mean, the nations will serve him. Why? Because of this great deliverance from the jaws of death, and a zera, a seed, meaning a future generation, will serve him. 
uh, it does tie together and by, by crying out from Psalm 22, verse 1, Yeshua does draw attention to the rest of that glorious psalm, which, again, plays itself out in such a striking way at the cross. Okay, only two verses left to go. Um, And yet, um, (laughs) you know, I'm sure you're familiar with, um, there's a a section in Kylan Delich when they are dealing with Isaiah 9, where these these great Hebrew scholars and and steeped obviously in their training in in some level of what what would I call it uh, almost a you know a naturalistic skepticism uh, in reading some texts where they have to just just had to admit what the prophet tells us here about this coming one is just so far beyond what anyone could ever imagine um, that someone could understand outside of just the, the, the great prophetic voice. Verses 11 and 12, they, they read, and you've done this in your debates. You've, you've actually said, you know, who said this? And, and it's hard to identify where it's coming from because this sounds like the New Testament. It, it, the, the, the categories and the fulfillments that... It's it's so incredible to think that this came so far before the New Testament, but out of his anguish he shall see it, he shall enjoy it to the full through his devotion. My righteous servant makes the many righteous. It is their punishment that he bears. Assuredly, I will give him the, the many as his portion. He shall receive the multitude as his spoil, for he exposed himself to death and was numbered among the sinners, whereas he bore the guilt of the many and made intercession for sinners. If this isn't the very seedbed, the ground out of which Romans 8 and the entire book of Hebrews uh, just just comes flowing forth, I don't know what else could be. You know, I, I, I want to say this with all candor. When I was a new believer, meeting with the rabbis, interacting with as many Jewish people as I could, I had a few experiences within the first five years of being a believer, meeting with ultra-Orthodox rabbis, where they challenged me deeply, especially when I I didn't know Hebrew yet, and and it was harder for me to answer some of the arguments. I knew the reality of my experience in God, how my sins had been forgiven, how I'd been transformed and born again. I knew that God had come into my life. I knew that Jesus was real, and yet a couple of times I was deeply challenged. And the second time it happened, I, I got on my face. I was going through anguish of soul. And I said, God, I just want to please you. And and if that means rejecting what I believe now about Jesus and being rejected by all my friends and everyone I know, I just want to follow you. I don't care. I have to be a loyal Jew and follow you. And if everything I believe is true and it means being rejected by my own Jewish people, then I will continue on the path where I am. It doesn't matter. I've just got to please you. And as I really sought God and just opened the scriptures, just on my face praying, just opened the Bible, it opened to Isaiah 53. And as, as I, it wasn't marked there or anything. And as I read the words, they were so overwhelming. And just, well, I was reminded as I heard you reading this again, these last two verses, so overwhelmingly clear to me that I, w- I would have to deny truth and reality itself to deny that this was speaking of Jesus, Yeshua. The picture, the description, and the reality of what he did and how it has changed so many millions of lives, including yours and mine, was absolutely undeniable. 
And if you read a Romans 5, that while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us, and, and the theology of Paul that you mentioned, here it is. And, and uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, some ancient versions, point to verse 11, saying that, that he will see light, which is also speaking of the light of salvation. But that's just a minor footnote here. Hmm. By his suffering or by his knowledge, he will make the many righteous. God calls him my righteous servant. So he makes us righteous. The righteous one declares us righteous by his suffering, and he bears our guilt, our iniquity, because of which God highly exalts him, either sharing the spoils with the many, or the many are the spoils themselves, that that we are the ones, the redeemed ones, who become the spoils. And why does God do it? It's causal, because he poured out his soul, his life, to death. He's numbered with the transgressors. And, And by the way, even Israel, the Jewish people, in their time of suffering, they were rejected and hated. We have been hated and rejected by the nations But numbered with the transgressors, that's specifically what happened to Yeshua when he dies a criminal's death, when he hangs on the cross between two malefactors and and dies in a way that that was the lowest way that you could put someone to death, when he's considered to be an outcast and hanging out with the publicans and the sinners. He's numbered with the transgressors, Mm -hmm. and yet he bears the sin of many and makes intercession that word makes intercession is the same verb that was used earlier about causing the iniquity of all of us to meet on him in verse 6. Now it's used again in a different sense. He makes intercession. He stands in the gap. Here he stands between death and life, between heaven and earth, and stretches out his hands and takes the guilt of the world upon him, and by his wounds we're healed. It's the gospel. And oh, it is. It is so, it's so amazingly clear laid out. I mean, I just... I'm, I, I'm one who bears our guilt and yet makes intercession the the uh, i can understand why the rabbis i mean i i i debated um a, a well-known scholar once by the name of john dominic crossan and you're undoubtedly familiar with dr crossan and you bet he uh nicest heretic you'll ever meet and he knows that i say it that way so <laughs> he really is but he basically because he comes has such a deep naturalistic materialism in his scholarship, he has to come to the conclusion that the the Gospels had to have been written to fulfill these things. There wasn't any history to it. They just wrote these. They ransacked the Old Testament, and they wrote the Gospels to fulfill these things because there's such a close correspondence. Now, of course, historically, it doesn't make a lick of sense because if they it was all made up at the time, there couldn't have been a beginning, a genesis of the Christian faith and the idea that, you know, a crucified Messiah would then take over the entire Roman Empire eventually just doesn't make any sense either. But the correspondence is so clear that the naturalist says, eh, there's got to be an explanation for this. They had the the gospel writers had to be making this stuff up because otherwise there's just no other possible fulfillment. There's no other way to see it. Yeah, the the fact is to try to claim it doesn't fit. it, It just doesn't work. And again, it's, it's as I said, it's like someone pointing at the Mona Lisa and different art critics saying that there's nothing special about this. And then you look away and you look back and think, wow, what a stunning picture. And there is a reason why people have, have uh, been stunned by the, the picture through the centuries. What you have to ask is, since these things did happen, since Isaiah prophesied them, is that an explanation for the worldwide Jesus movement? Is that an explanation for someone who seemed to have failed in his mission 
Does that indicate that he did, in fact, rise from the dead? Does it indicate, in fact, that he has been radically changing lives through the centuries? The fact is, you and I know a good story in itself is just not going to sell. A powerful emotional story is not going to carry around the world and go to, to the point that people will willingly die for their faith because of a nice story, nor are you going to get all the people in the first generation who knew it didn't happen to go along with a myth. Right. So as you argued with Professor Cross, and I'm so thrilled that you get to have these debates with, with people like him and, <laughs> and Bishop Spong and, and others, uh, the, the fact of the matter is the text in the New Testament tells us these things happened not because it was recorded in Isaiah, because the, the disciples didn't understand it as it was happening. These are embarrassing, negative things to say that they got it wrong and that they tried to use a sword to fight for the kingdom. These are embarrassing things about your leaders. They're recorded because it's accurate, and it's only afterwards they looked and saw it was written in advance. And and for, for Jewish listeners, doesn't it make sense that God would lay it out so plainly? It's not the only text, but to me it's the central and most powerful one. Doesn't it make sense that God would lay it out so powerfully so that when we look back, we'd find it? And the, the single text that more Jews have come to faith through, or once in the faith have had their faith confirmed through, is this text, Isaiah 53, which is why it's always our goal to just get people to read the text, because we believe if they do, their eyes will be open to the truth. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. I mean, that's that's the gospel, that's Romans, that's... Uh, for any person who is looking for true shalom with God, that is the only way it's going to happen. And there is this servant, but it he is he's he's called himself righteous, and yet he makes others righteous because he bears sins. There's been no one in the history of the Jewish people that could even come close to fulfilling those kinds of parameters. And as you've argued so many times, uh, you know. There's and there's really no way that anyone else could ever come. The the time frames are all wrong. Everything. If you if you want the Old Testament scriptures to stand as a revelation from God, here is the one who did these things, and he has done that. He's accomplished that. And yet here, without any question, I don't care what how liberal you want to put the dating of Isaiah. If you want to do Deutero Isaiah and all the rest of that stuff, it doesn't matter. This comes long before the fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, no matter where you put it, 700 years or 500 years, it's still a long time before Christ comes. There you have the fulfillment. If that does not indicate the supernatural nature of Scripture, I don't know what evidence you could possibly present to someone that could. And uh, on top of that, the other thought is, is, where did they get these ideas from? Where did they get these insights from? Where did they come up with these concepts so powerfully? Obviously, God had been laying it out uh, in the scriptures, the principles of the atonement system and sacrifice and intercession and priestly ministry had been laying things out. But then even in the midst of it, this is a soaring star of revelation of vicarious atonement and and, uh, such majesty that scholars through the years, if they don't agree that it's Jesus Yeshua, They've got a thousand books with a thousand different interpretations because 
no one else fits it. Right. No one else fits it. So I, I'm with you in, in awe of the passage, in awe of the God who inspired it. And, yeah, whether it's 500 years in advance or 700 years in advance or 200 years in advance, I mean, there's still – it's inexplicable. And, and the fact that it comes to pass so gloriously with death and resurrection and transformation of lives encourages me that we'll see everything that the text still speaks of coming to pass of, of even a greater astonishment and even a greater recognition where Jewish people read this and say, there it is. Now we get it. Now we understand it. I expect to see that more and more in the days to come. Well, and you've, if you want evidence that uh, God has continued to use that message, I mean, uh, look at the two of us. I'm, I'm, I'm just a, a silly-looking Scotsman living uh, far away from the events of Israel. You were a heroin-shooting uh, teenage rebel Jewish guy that uh, the Lord had to get hold of uh, in, a, in a miraculous way, and yet... Here we are both looking at the same text, and we're seeing the exact same thing, not because someone's standing over us and forcing us to do so, but because both of us have read the text in its original languages, in translations, and yet 2,000 years later, the message is just as clear, and we both bow to the same God, and we both have the same hope and the same gospel, and uh, that's a pretty amazing thing to consider. Absolutely. Amen. I couldn't have said it better. Well, Dr. Michael Brown, I tell you, um, uh, you, you, you are such an encouragement to me. I hope you know that I, I listen uh, very regularly, and even in the midst of uh, my busyness, especially over the past couple of weeks, um, as I'm crunching through the, uh, the ever-increasingly hot desert uh, in the early mornings on my bicycle, very frequently it is your debates, and sometimes your books being read by that wonderful electronic voice uh, that, uh, <laughs> that is accompanying me on those many, many miles as I, as I ride along. It is uh, very encouraging. Uh, know that we pray for you. And uh, I don't know, uh, when, when are we going to get together to do another debate together? I sort of enjoyed the last one we did. Oh, yeah, we, we, we've got to. Side by side was a joy, and, and it was also a joy to go at each other. And, and you should know, whenever anybody ever calls my radio show, and is ready to bash Calvinism, I, I always have you listening in my ear that I'll, I'll respectfully share differences and, and do whatever I can to speak well of, of my brothers in the faith. And, well, and, and I've often a, described you as my favorite Arminian. So, uh, you know, I, I use you as an illustration many times of how people can disagree on particular issues but be brothers and love each other and stand side by side on the core issues of the gospel. And, hey, You've probably got people on your side. I got people on my side that think I'm just a little bit crazy for uh, thinking you're uh, you're you're the best thing since sliced bread. But um, uh, look, uh, we've we've stood in the gap together, and something. Uh, look, we better be praying for each other because if things keep going the way yeah. they're going in our society, we may be visiting each other in prison. So uh, uh, absolutely, yeah. We, and and I, I I applaud you for your frontline labors. In fact, I I am looking in the coming years to really strengthen my my. Uh, Islamic apologetics, because I've, I've kind of let that go over the years and blessed to see you taking on uh, issue after issue. And, and look, the things we're facing, societal attack, the rise of Islam, apostasy and heresy from so many fundamentals of the gospel. We need to stand back to back in that way. And, and by the way, for your listeners, it's, it's volume three of Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus that 
I go through Isaiah 53 and the principal objections to that. So in my five-volume series, it's volume three. Yes. But it, it's a joy to be with you. And a, a colleague of mine just gave me back a bunch of your DVD debates that I lent him. So I've, I've got them sitting on a stack right in front of me, ready to get into those. Well, I, I hope to be able to send you a book fairly soon uh, called What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran for your uh, reading, enjoyment, and hopefully recommendation as well. I'm working hard on that. And so uh, as you as you look toward that Islamic area, hopefully we can, uh, uh, maybe someday we can get some, uh, some Muslims to debate us on whether... Uh, uh, Isaiah 53 is about uh, Jesus and whether Muhammad is uh, prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 and John 14 oh, and stuff like that. I, uh, uh, that I'll do tomorrow, man. Let's, oh, let's you bet. You up. bet. We'll do it. So thank you so much, brother. And uh, we will. I'll be back in touch with you about when we can uh, have you back on to talk about the real kosher Jesus. All right. Thanks. God thanks. Bless. All right. God bless. Thank you, folks, for listening to The Dividing Line today. I really hope. I, I know that was at times a little bit in-depth, but I really hope that you uh, found that to be uh, extremely useful and will find it to be extremely useful when we post that up and allow people to listen to that. A tremendous passage, a tremendously encouraging passage in our faith and our recognition of the Bible as the Word of God and the Messiahship of Jesus and His being sent by the Father to accomplish exactly what He did accomplish. Thanks for listening today. We'll see you next time on The Dividing Line. Tomorrow, in fact, a special Dividing Line, a radio-free Geneva. Tune in then. We'll see you. God bless. Dividing Line has been brought to you by Alpha and Omega Ministries. If you'd like to contact us, call us at 602-973-4602 or write us at P.O. Box 37106, Phoenix, Arizona, 85069. You can also find us on the World Wide Web at aomin.org. That's A-O-M-I-N dot O-R-G, where you'll find a complete listing of James White's books, tapes, debates, and tracks. Join us again next Tuesday morning at 11 a.m. for The Dividing Line. Hot